Um, this morning we're continuing our Acts series, and so we're in Acts chapter 10. If you want to flip over in your Bibles to Acts 10, and then we'll make our way to it in just a few moments. I grew up in Malaysia, and some of you may know this about me. Malaysia is about as far as you can go on the other side of the world before you start coming back because the world is round and all of that. Um, but when I was 10 years old, when I was 10 years old, my family moved from Malaysia to America, and my parents were obeying uh, the call of the Lord on their life to to uh, give up their careers and their jobs and to go to Bible school and to uh, and then devote themselves into full-time vocational ministry to be pastors. And uh, and so we moved to the States, to Portland, Oregon, when I was 10. My sister was 13. And I remember um, desperately wanting to fit in, desperately wanting to, uh, to not be kind of this outsider. Now, fortunately, I went to a Christian school, so it really didn't involve doing anything bad to fit in. It really involved learning to speak American. And uh, I had the sixth grade teacher when I first got to the States. That's the, the, the grade that I was in. And uh, I had a sixth grade teacher who, who sort of took great pleasure in pointing out that I didn't roll my R's. And so one day early in my time there, I said the word airplane, only I said it airplane. And he said, now, hang on a second, what did you say? And I said, airplane. He says, well, will you stand up? So I stood up as if a 10-year-old kid in sixth grade doesn't feel out of place already. And he says, uh, now, now say it after me, airplane. And I said, airplane. <laughs> and and the, the experience, honestly, you kind of laugh and you kind of feel bad for me, which that's a bit of the goal. And then... Um, <laughs> But, but, you sh- but you should know that, that I spent many afternoons in front of the mirror at our house practicing my American and learning to roll my R's and all of that. And so it was kind of a, it kind of sticks with you because you don't want to be an outsider. I had a different problem when at 13 we moved back to Malaysia and I realized that Asians care very much about Asians not becoming westernized and ruined by the wicked West. And so, uh, and so I discovered that my friends in Malaysia were, were eager to, to find out if I had abandoned eating curry or uh, certain dishes or certain... And they said, oh, are you American or are you still Malaysian? You know, and I had to sort of go through another rite of passage to prove that I still was that. And then when I was, just before I turned 18, I moved back to the States to go to college. And I went to school at a private Christian university in Tulsa, Oklahoma, called Oral Roberts University. Some of you went there as well. Support the O. Um, and, uh, and, and one of our breaks there, I, I wasn't going to go back to Malaysia for a one-week fall break or something like that. And so I had a friend who, um, who decided to invite me over to his home for, I think it was for fall break, actually. And, um, and I said, okay, that's great. Well, where do you live? And he says, well, I live in Woodhull, Illinois. And I said, well, I, yeah, where is that? And he goes, well, it's kind of near the Quad Cities. Have you heard of the Quad Cities? I said, I haven't heard of the Quad Cities. And he says, well, it's close to Chicago. I said, okay, I've heard of Chicago. And so I went with him to his, um, his little home in, in Woodhull, Illinois, a little area of town. And it was a quaint little town. It was maybe a bit of a foreshadow for meeting Holly, who is also from a small town but in Iowa. But anyway, I was with my friend Ben, and we were at his home in Woodhull, Illinois. And he said, hey, look for... For fun around here, we kind of all go to the high school football games. So uh, why don't you come with us? That's where we're all going this evening. So I said, okay, great. And I went, and we're watching the game, and I'm getting into it and cheering and all of this stuff. And his mom um, introduces me to one of their family friends and says, oh, hey, this is one of Ben's friends from college. He's from Malaysia. And without skipping a beat, this woman looks at me, and her eyes get very large, and she leans in close, and she says very slowly, Welcome to America. (laughs) 
I said, thanks. Yeah, it's great to be here. And then she sort of you know, taught herself. Like. I've had a number of different moments of feeling like an outsider, kind of trying to show that I belong. This text this morning in Acts 10 is about an outsider who has spent his whole life being treated like an outsider. And we're about to see what Jesus and the gospel mean for an outsider. We're about to discover this morning what it means for someone who has spent the majority of his life feeling like a person who was left out, left behind, and what Jesus and the gospel will do for this person. Acts chapter 10, verse 1. There was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion in the Italian company. He and his household were pious, Gentile, God-worshippers. Now, it, the, these three phrases mean little to us, but all three of these phrases are not phrases you'd normally put together. Pious and Gentile, for one. Nobody thought the Gentiles were pious. They thought they were heathen, pagan, Gentile, you know. And then to say that they were God-worshippers. God-worshippers? Like one God-worshippers? Or like worshipper of the gods? Because Gentiles had all kinds of gods. Right away, Luke's trying to show us that this person doesn't fit in any of our boxes. We think we want to peg him by saying, oh, he's a Gentile. But no, but he's, he's a God-fearing Gentile. What? And, and, and so right off the bat, we, we're, we're, we're kind of warned not to put this box around this man. He gave generously to those in need among the Jewish people and prayed to God constantly. If you're into kind of a, a big picture view of where Acts is going, you can really map out the trajectory of the gospel in the book of Acts by looking at the, the verse in Acts chapter 1, Acts 1, 8, where Jesus says, you're going to receive power to be my witnesses, and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and then in Judea, and then where? Samaria, and then where? The uttermost parts of the earth. Now, if you've been following this story in our Acts series, you know that Jerusalem is where Pentecost happened, and, and they, they were God's witnesses, and people came. And then, remember in Acts 8, Philip goes to Samaria. You remember this? And he, he, baptized, he meets this Ethiopian eunuch. So we're seeing the gospel go to Jerusalem, Judea. It's gone to Samaria. And then the Ethiopian is a, is a bit of the first sign of the uttermost parts of the earth. Today, the gospel in Acts 10 is about to go to a Roman soldier. And you may think, okay, well, what's so unusual about that? Well, if there was anyone that people wouldn't wanted to, have, to, to get in on this Jesus business, it would have been a Roman soldier. And we'll say more about that in a moment. The verse goes on here in verse 3. One day at nearly 3 o'clock in the afternoon, he clearly saw an angel from God in a vision. And the angel came to him and said, Cornelius, startled, he stared at the angel and replied, What is it, Lord? And the angel said, your prayers and your compassionate acts are like a memorial offering to God. Send messengers to Joppa at once and summon a certain Simon, the one known as Peter. He is a guest of Simon the Tanner, whose house is near, whose house is near the seacoast. If you're kind of a visual learner and you like TV shows or, or movies, you could imagine Acts 10 unfolding like the kind of TV episode where you, in one scene you see Cornelius, then in the next scene, you see Peter, and the whole narrative kind of ping-pongs back and forth between those two guys. So this is God meeting Cornelius, then it's God showing up to Peter, then it's God, uh, um, uh, Cornelius waiting for Peter, and then they finally clash like a good storyteller. It's two scenes, and then they finally collide. Acts 10, as a little side note, is actually the longest narrative in the book of Acts. It's the longest story, so it's got this uh, device uh, built into it. Verse 9 
At noon on the following day, as their journey brought them close to the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted to eat. And while others were preparing the meal, he had a visionary experience. I have this quite often before lunch when others are preparing the meal. He saw heaven opened up and something like a large linen sheet being lowered to the earth by its four corners. Inside the sheet were all kinds of four-legged animals, reptiles, and wild birds. It kind of gives pigs in a blanket a new meaning. You know, but Peter's seeing this vision of unclean animals that are unclean to Jewish tradition. And a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter exclaimed, absolutely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. Peter's given to hyperbole. We know this from him in, in the Gospels. But the voice spoke a second time, never consider unclean what God has made pure. And this happened three times, and then the object was suddenly pulled back into heaven. Now, part of what we have to understand as we're talking about this text this morning is, what's the deal with the food restrictions? Old Testament food restrictions, why did they care? Why did Israel care? Why did Jewish people care about food restrictions? What's the big deal about this? Because to you and I, it's like when you think of food restrictions, you're either thinking about counting calories or you're thinking about being gluten-free or you're thinking about, oh, I can't have dairy or nuts or eggs. or yeah. And we have a lot of those, stuff, those challenges in our home. But we don't understand food restrictions as a moral thing, as a, we can't eat this because it will defile us, it will upset God. Why, why did they care? One of the things to recognize is that Think about the Jewish people from the perspective of a minority group. I've just told you a little bit about my story, about being in America as a minority group, being, being an Asian in, in America. And in my first few years as a child when I was here with my parents, you discovered that m minority groups in a majority culture tend to fight to maintain a little bit of your identity and to sort of say, no, look, this is who we are, this is what we do, and don't, don't, let, don't get too westernized or don't get too Americanized. Now, Part of why these food restrictions became so important, God gives it to them initially to sort of say, okay, look, this is how you're going to show yourself that you're separate. But when they found themselves living in other countries, in other lands, in exile or under Roman rule, the food restrictions all of a sudden become this thing, this way of showing that they are different. It's a way of clinging to national identity. This is a bit hard for us to understand, but I mean, just if you were to sort of take a, a really extreme situation and imagine that, God forbid, America was overrun by, an, by another nation, let's say that China calls in the debt or whatever, and they say, we're taking over, okay, instead of paying us back, just let us run your country, you know? And, and, then, and then all of a sudden, everybody has to eat, you know, noodles and chopsticks and burgers are against the law, and you're secretly saying, doggone it, I'm an American, I'll have a cheeseburger if I want to, Okay. Food can become a way of hanging on to your identity. Or if you've ever been overseas and you try to eat the food that the locals eat and then all of a sudden you see those, that yellow M and you think, oh. It's a way of remembering what your home is. It's a way of anchoring your identity. And so for the Jews, these food restrictions kind of became a way of hanging on to their identity. But it also eventually sort of enlarged and it became this big social barrier between us and them. And then they sort of started to believe funny things about each other. So Jews would tell stories about Gentiles and say, you know, Gentiles, their homes are filthy because they eat pork. 
And, 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 and seriously, this is one of the examples. They would say, well, you know, Gentiles, they're known to just have abortions right there and there and then in their homes. And so their homes are just, it's just gross. It's awful. These pagans, Gentiles. And Gentiles on the flip side would make up stories about Jews and say, well, Jews, you know, pork is the cheapest meat in the market. And who do the Jews think they are that they can't eat pork? Are they too good for us? And, you know, these Jews, they're so lazy, they won't, they'll only work six days out of the week. The goal. Can you imagine? And all of a sudden, these barriers feed into suspicions. Suspicions grow into hatreds and all of this stuff. Now, in case you start to think, well, Jesus, Glenn, we don't have anything like that today, do we? One of you in our congregation recommended this book to me a few weeks ago called The Big Sort. It's a, so, it's a journalist writing about some sociology research. And the subtitle is Why the Clustering of Like-Minded America is Tearing Us Apart. And they talk, about, they talk about studies over the last 35 years or so that have shown that people are moving to communities that are just like them. And so instead of having a county being more diverse, even politically, you have a county that is solidly red or solidly blue. And you find that people are choosing to only be with people who believe like they do, who think like they do, who watch the same news stations that they do, and so, do you know what ends up happening? If all you hear every day is your own opinion reinforced, guess what you start to believe? That you're right. And anyone who doesn't agree is a silly little idiot. Because they don't know. And if you hear your same arguments again and again, and you hear the, you've said the arguments, and then you hear your friends say the arguments, and all you hear is those same arguments reinforced, guess what you start to develop? A giant wall. Between us and them, conservatives, liberals, people who love free market, people who are socialists, and on and on it goes. And the accusations about each other are often worse than the truth. But it's really not all that different than this Jew-Gentile issue, because there's barriers, there's things that you sort of um, uh, throw up in, in, in between us, because we like to stay amongst ourselves. We want to know who our tribe is, and we want to stick with those people. You can kind of walk into two parties going on, and you can kind of size it up right away and think, that's not my people. Or you could walk in another room and think, yeah, that's who it is. Interestingly enough, there's some fascinating chapters in here about how this has affected church, not surprisingly. And so people, as it turns out, go to church not to really let their thinking be challenged by the Word of God, but to let their own opinions and values be reinforced. Now, certainly, that's not any of you. You come here every week saying, Oh God, renew my mind, transform me by the renewing of my mind. But we can't help it, can we? Sometimes people, we hear things and we say, Well, wait a minute, I don't know what he was saying, but I, that's not what I believe about the Bible. And on and on we cluster ourselves into these groups that are no different than the Jews and the Gentiles. And so Cornelius, is this, Peter has this vision of these animals that he has been raised his whole life to believe are unclean. And then God says, don't you call anything unclean that I have made. He says, well, God, I mean, did, didn't you give us these laws? So the next question, and this is kind of all by way of preamble to get to the one main thing we'll say today, but I think it's an important question to ask ourselves. O Old Testament food restrictions, why did they change? Because in the debate that happens in culture or in the marketplace today, someone will say, well, you quote Leviticus about same-sex marriage, but how come you eat bacon? 
right? Somebody's going to say that. Somebody does say that. And so we sort of need to know, why do these Old Testament food restrictions change? Can we take this rabbit trail together? Torah, the word, for, the word that's often translated law, is really better translated instructions. It's teaching. Now, if you think of it in terms of a parent and a child, it begins to make more sense. Any parents in the room? Have you ever told your child one thing, and then over time you change that instruction? You inconsistent parent. No, you change rules all the time. You say, Glenn, no, I don't. I raise my kids God's way. I don't change my instructions. (laughs) Yes, you do. And I'll give you a perfect example. When your kids are little, you tell them, carte blanche, across the board, do not talk to strangers, right? We just, we don't do that. Do not talk to strangers. And then at some certain age, they meet a stranger and you're there and the stranger talks to them and they go like this. And you say, come on now, speak up, don't be shy. (laughs) For five years you told me not to talk to strangers. I said, no, okay, okay, listen, when I'm with you and I say it's okay, then you can talk to them. Oh, okay, okay. Wait a minute, you just changed the law. Right. And then as they get a little bit older, let's say they're going off to school on their own and you want to teach them to make friends, guess what? Those are all strangers at first. And so you're going to say to them, hey, honey, you know, the way the world works is if you want friends, you've got to learn to be a friend. And so this is what I want you to do. Go up to that girl and say, hi, my name is Sophia. Would you like to play today? You know? Now, if your child was a strict legalist, they would say, now, wait a minute. The law was don't talk to strangers. But the law, the Torah, is instructions. It's instructions that God is giving to his child, Israel. He says, Israel is my firstborn. And so God is guiding Israel. The first thing he says is, don't eat any of this stuff. You need to show that you're different. And then eventually he says, okay, listen, my bigger plan is to use you to reach all peoples, which means you're going to have to get to know them and eat their stuff. What? That's a little rabbit trail on why it changes. One of the things you can do is to see all of the Old Testament as seeing the Old Testament narratives as flowing toward Jesus. It's all leading toward Jesus. And then see the New Testament imperatives, all the instructions, all the New Testaments do this, therefore live this way. All the New Testament imperatives flow out of Jesus. Who's at the center of this book that we read? Jesus. All of the Old Testament is this road toward Jesus, who is the full and final revelation of God, not these instructions along the way. Does that make sense? Okay? And, 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 and all of the way that we are supposed to live, we look backwards and we say, all right, the imperatives flow out of Jesus. I'm telling you, if you memorize this and work with this and think this, this is going to help your Bible reading a little bit. To see the Old Testament as a narrative that flows toward Jesus and to see the letters in the New Testament as instruction and imperatives that flow out of Jesus. Okay, enough of that rabbit trail. Uh, The reason I do rabbit trails like that is just, I think it's important to help us learn to read the Bible. And to not sort of, when someone says, I believe all the Bible's true. Okay, well, how can you eat bacon? Because it's delicious. Food restrictions had become social boundaries and Jesus was saying, wait a minute, my plan was always to bring all people in. No boundary wall stands. 
Acts 10, verse 20, skip down to verse 25. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in order to honor him. Our Old Testament reading this morning said that this promise to, the, to Israel is that they would be a light to the Gentiles and kings would bow before them, princes and rulers. You have to wonder if there's a little bit of this in Cornelius bowing before it. Or someone else said, you know, Cornelius, silly Gentiles, they'll worship anything. Anyway, I don't know which it is. But Peter lifted him up saying, get up, like you, I'm just a human. And as they continued to talk, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. And he said to them, you all realize it is forbidden for a Jew to associate or visit with outsiders. Well, nice to see you too, Peter. Please come into my home. We've got a lovely meal prepared. I mean, that's his opening line. <laughs> you know I'm not supposed to do this. Visit outsiders. However, God has shown me that I should never call a person impure or unclean. Thanks, but you kind of just did. <laughs> you know? For this reason, when you sent for me, I came without objection. Never mind that it took three times, but uh, I want to know then why you sent for me. And then Cornelius goes on, he recaps the vision. Skip down to verse 33. I sent for you right away and you were kind enough to come. Now here we are gathered in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has directed you to say. Now Peter kind of gets his thoughts together and his opening line of his sermon is this. Peter said, I really am learning that God doesn't show partiality to one group of people over another. And he goes on and he preaches Jesus. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit falls on this group of people. And Peter basically says something like, well, uh, they've got the Holy Spirit. What's to keep them from being baptized? And you kind of see God pushing this story along the way so that even Peter's prejudice can't stop it and derail it. Where are we in the story? Where do we find ourselves in Acts 10? Maybe for some of us, we are Cornelius. We are an outsider looking in. And, and maybe you say, well, I, I would never say it that way. But if you think about it, you're a little bit like me when I first came to the States. When you come to church, you sort of feel like you're an outsider. Like there's all these good people who love God, who know the words, know when to stand, know when to sit, know when to clap, know when to say. And I, I don't know. I'm an outsider. Or maybe, if you really think about Cornelius, he's a soldier with blood on his hands. Our, our soldiers, by and large, are respected, and our, our, we've, we try the best that we can in our government to pick causes and wars that we mean to do good. Rome was not quite as judicious or careful. It was just about conquering. And, and sure, they made life better for the people they conquered, but doggone it, it was about expanding the empire. Cornelius is a centurion who finds himself within, he's a cog within this gigantic empire that uses brutality and violence to gain stuff. What's he to do? Have you ever felt like you're stuck in the position that you're in? That you didn't choose this, but you kind of work for this, or you're implicated with this system, or you're implicated with that system, and this is just where you are? And so maybe you think that because you're implicated with this or that or this or that, 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 that you'll never really be an insider, that you'll always be stuck outside the glass looking in. Cornelius must have felt that way. Must have felt that there was too much violence he had seen and done, too much blood on his hand, too much stuff. That, that no matter all of his piety and good works and devotion to God, that, that maybe it would never have been good enough. And maybe sometimes we think that. God, how good is good enough? How much good can I do to erase the bad that I've done? How can I wash 
myself of these stains. The message for us this morning is that only Jesus does this. Only Jesus does this. Maybe you're not Cornelius. Maybe we are Peter. Maybe we're like Peter who who we've sort of got our tribe and we sort of know what church should be and should look like and who the people that we worship with, how they ought to look and dress and eat and live and and vote and all of that stuff. And if they don't look that way, we're not sure we want to be a part of this. And God's challenge to Peter is to say, listen, I'm pouring out my spirit on all flesh. Your boundary markers don't mean anything anymore. Your little lines in the sand don't mean anything anymore. How easy is it for something that we, we draw a line because we want to take a stand for righteousness, and that's a good thing, but how easily does a good thing, like, a, like taking a stand, turn into a boundary? And instead of just making us righteous, it keeps others out. Have you ever thought about that? Peter is trapped in this world of, he believes in Jesus, but he's still tempted to justify himself. And so he's, he's clinging to a system in his case, food stuff, that is a way of justifying himself. And God is saying, look, if we really are justified by the faithfulness of Jesus, the Messiah, then you can let go of this now. So, well, hey, well, wait a minute. No, I can't let them and them and them. And them. No, it's time to let it go. It's interesting, in this book, The Big Sort, there's a chapter in here that nails the modern church growth movement. I mean, nails it. And he describes it, quoting our own voices, saying that somewhere in the 70s, evangelicals saw denominational churches declining, and so they decided they were going to employ in the states techniques that missionaries have used in Asia and India and all these other places. And the technique's very simple. Speak to the people in their own culture. Become one of them, or better yet, have locals reach them. Have people who are just like you reach People who are just like them. Does that make sense? People just like us. And it's a wonderful missions sort of strategy, but when you, they began to apply it to the states, they be, actually church growth people said, create churches that are homogenous units. Make churches that all look the same so people will know right when they walk in, this is my church. And by golly, it worked. And so we have large churches that pretty much look and smell and taste the same. Because we employed a tactic that said, all right, let's, let's be missionary-minded. Let's reach the lost at any cost. Let's just find a way to speak the language of our culture. So if there's busy businessmen, then we want services that start on time and end on time. And if there's people in here that are used to comfort because they're middle class and they're rich and they have money and they have air conditioning, then make sure it's never too hot or crowded in a church. Tucker, one of our young entrepreneurs in the city, said to me the other day, he said, you know, don't apologize that we're going to be inconvenienced in church. He's like, that's good for us. So you can blame him for that. (laughs) But I, I think that. I'm not interested in New Life Downtown becoming a homogenous unit where we've all understood that the middle class way of life in white America is going to be the way the church is. No, it's not. No, it's not. Because I'm not interested in this becoming one homogenized unit where we all look the same, smell the same, talk the same. It ought to be different. It ought to be messy. We ought to rub on one another. We ought to sort of, whoa, really? You think? Okay, okay. You know, when I think about this, if the Holy Spirit believed in the homogenous unit 
missions principle of church growth that we taught in the 70s and 80s, he wouldn't have sent Peter to Cornelius. Why would you send a Jew, fisherman, to a Roman centurion? Respected, powerful, simpleton, Peter. He's like, God, that's not very strategic. Like marketing 101 is know your audience, you know, and then send the right, yeah. I have a feeling that the Holy Spirit has more in mind than marketing. I have a feeling that the Holy Spirit really wants to create a people out of all peoples. A church out of many different types. One of the most encouraging things to me that's already happening at New Life Downtown is to hear stories about your dinner groups, your meal groups. I visited one. We're going to visit another this afternoon while we'll be bolting out of here to make it in time for lunch. And um, I love it because what I'm hearing is there's, there's odd groups of people that are meeting together. Uh, nobody's saying that, okay? You're like, did someone find out that I'm weird? You know? <laughs> it's just that there's young people and there's older people. There's people who live up north. There's people who live downtown. There's people who live in the burbs. There's people who live in the hood. There's people who, no. there's people who, there's people who, there's people who, who, who are diehard, bleed red Republican, and there are people who are like, I could care less, apolitical. And then there are people who are diehard, bleed blue Democrats. It ought to be that way. I have no desire for this to become a place where we all look like one another. I think a sure sign that the Spirit is at work is that it's beginning to cross some boundaries. A sure sign that the Spirit is the one doing the work and not a clever homogenous unit marketing principle is that the people that are being drawn to us are, include people who are not like us. Might be people like us, but might be people who are not like us too. That's when you know this smells like God. Jesus is, is the lead actor in this story. We could talk about Cornelius, we could talk about Peter, but really the star of this story is Jesus. And that's not just a Sunday school cliche because Jesus is the star of every story, though he is. (laughs) But really, even in the way Luke is telling this, Cornelius is a good guy, but he doesn't make this happen. And Peter's a good guy, but it takes three visions for him to be convinced. Really, who's the one who's building his church? It's Jesus. And not only is Jesus the lead actor in the story, and we'll close with this, Jesus makes outsiders insiders. Jesus is the one who takes people who don't belong, who takes a group of misfits and calls them family, who takes a group of people who felt like they don't belong and are outsiders, and he says, no, 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 in me you belong. You're insiders. You're family. You are now one household. The world has a parody of this idea, and it's called tolerance. Tolerance is a cheap imitation of unity. Because tolerance says we could all just sort of bear with one another. I understand that, and that's better than not bearing with one another. But Jesus has a word that's stronger than tolerance. It's the word unity. It's the word oneness. It means that no matter where you've come from, if you are in Christ, you become one. So it's not a blanket, I love you, you love me, I accept you, you accept It's not cheap tolerance. It's a very costly unity. It's the unity that says, all right, I'm letting go of this label that I used to wear, Malaysian, American, whatever it is, I'm taking off that label, and I'm taking on only one label. It's the name of Jesus. 
And in Christ, Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. Why? Because the only thing that matters if you're in Christ is Christ. It's the only thing that matters. And oh, that we would catch that and see that and believe that and truly let it catch us and change us and make us different. Let's pray this morning and get ready to come to the table of the Lord. The Lord's table is a perfect picture to end this sermon. Because Luke, the same writer who wrote Acts, wrote a gospel, a story about Jesus. And Luke told lots of stories about Jesus at the table. And in one of the stories, Jesus says, look, people from far and near are going to come to the table, to my feast. I'm going to throw a feast one day, and people from all over are going to eat at it. Rich, poor, they're all going to eat at it. And the table is a wonderful image because it reminds us that we don't belong any more than someone else does. We weren't part of it. We have no claim to it. But it's Jesus who gave his body and gave his blood to make us one. Amen? So as we kind of contemplate just here a little bit and kind of reflect and confess and repent, maybe you could think of the ways that you, like Cornelius, are on the outside looking in, but that maybe you've tried with your own effort to sort of push your way in. And that what we really need to do is to say, Jesus, it's you that I need. Or maybe you've been like Peter and, and you're so caught up in justifying yourself that you've ended up condemning others and leaving others out. Maybe this morning it's a time to say, Jesus, let everyone come to you. Let everyone be def- redefined by you. Repent and turn and come to you that we can all be one, that no one will be left out. Let's pray this morning. On your own, as these things come to your heart, if you would confess it quietly where you are, and then we'll pray a prayer of confession together.